Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. I'm Kelly, and today we've got a great episode from way back in 2020. We'll talk about animal protection laws and lobbying for the animals with the true expert, Sarah Amundsen, president of the Humane Society Legislative Fund. Thanks for joining and enjoy. Welcome back to Humane Voices. Today we are chatting about animal protection law with Sarah Amundsen, president of the Humane Society Legislative Fund, the legislative and political organization affiliated with the Humane Society of the United States. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show today. We're really excited to have you. Austin and Carrie, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Sarah, um, for some listeners who may not be familiar with our legislative work, uh, can you explain what HSLF is and uh, what some of the work that you and your team do on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. So the Humane Society Legislative Fund is organized primarily as just that, a lobbying arm of the Humane Society of the United States. In addition, we also do political work to elect humane candidates, because if you are going to have humane laws, you have got to have electeds who are willing to go to bat for you. And that is a strong component of the work that we do. We handle the federal agenda, so we work both federal legislation through the U.S. Congress, but we also do administration work. So whether the administration is Obama or Trump, we're in a situation where every one of those departments that touches on animal protection, and it really literally is everything from the United States Department of Agriculture to the Department of Justice, there are ways in which animals are protected through those departments, and that's federal regulation. So it's two components of the work that we do in the issues advocacy basis. And um, that's obviously what our team prioritizes. Last year, it was so interesting to me to close out the year. We've got some partnerships with some pretty heavy hitters in terms of K Street lobbyists also. And those folks um, are envious, shall we say, of the work that we do for the Humane Society Legislative Fund, simply because Washington, D.C. is at such a stalemate. You know, this week is obviously incredible from the perspective of the history of what we're dealing with here in the U.S. Congress and also across the nation. Um, And yet, because we have always treated animal protection issues from a bipartisan or a nonpartisan basis, we're able to cut through the noise in so many situations and actually get things done. And that particular individual is a former chief of staff to the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He said in all the years that he's been affiliated with HSLF and HSUS, this is literally the best year 2019, he has seen with regard to the U.S. Congress. And that was high praise coming from him. It's particularly amazing, like given the sort of state of the country right now that you guys have continued to be able to be so successful, I think. I couldn't agree with you more, Carrie. Mm. And I think, again, the framework is ensuring that you've got support from both sides of the aisle, and you've got support from independents. So perfect example is there isn't a single federal animal protection bill that the Humane Society Legislative Fund actually lobbies on behalf of that doesn't start from the outset with sponsors, both from the Republican side and the Democratic side. That is awesome. Yeah. 
How does that help you? I mean, does it help you in terms of framing the issues with our constituents when you can explain them as nonpartisan or bipartisan? I think it not only helps us frame up the issue with our own constituents, it helps us frame up these issues to broader audiences. Mm -hmm. So whether it's other members of Congress, members of the press, um, entities that are actually impacted by the work that we're doing, we're really in sort of a unique place to be able to harness the energy of what we do whether it's working with other stakeholders or other members of Congress, to say this is why we believe this mm. is clearly a pathway forward for animal protection. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I feel like, you know, very frequently for for reasons legitimate and non-legitimate, like the term lobbyist gets kind of a bad name and a bad rep. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit, just so, just so folks can understand a little bit about like, what is it that you guys are doing just day to day? And like, why is it why is it important to I mean, I think frequently people think about corporate lobbyists or people lobbying on behalf of industry, and don't always think about the fact that there are these advocacy issues that require someone to go and, you know, try and make the case for them at a federal level. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what that day to day work actually looks like for you and your team. Sure, Carrie, that is such a good question. And with all due respect, I wear that lobbyist badge as a badge of honor. Awesome. <laughs> I truly do. You know, swamp creature, Sarah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it is pejorative for so many of those folks who are um, representing industries mm -hmm. and representing industries sometimes that have severe and negative impacts mm -hmm. on animal protection issues. We wear it as a badge of honor because we know at the end of the day, we're on the right side mm -hmm. of the issues. Yeah. We've got a strong constituency behind us. And, you know, we're basically doing the right work. So, I'm happy to be a swamp creature because <laughs> I know exactly where I'm at in terms of these animal protection issues. Swamp creatures are animals too. Absolutely. We protect swamp creatures. <laughs> uh, Sarah, you said it yourself that last year was was a pretty monumental year for you, and for HSLF um, and the work that you did. How does HLS, HSLF, excuse me, determine which animal issues to take on? Is it preventative? Is it reactionary? How do you prioritize uh, what campaigns you do for the year? Well, first and foremost, Austin, I have to be honest with you. The strength of what we do is on the basis of the Humane Society family of mm -hmm. organizations. We work incredibly closely with our colleagues at the Humane Society of the United States and equally as closely with our colleagues at Humane Society International. Sort of the affiliate program, whether it's the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association or the entities that are providing direct care for animals like Black Beauty are critically important to the way that we're able to frame up animal protection issues and frankly, demonstrate why they're necessary. Mm. You know, you want to be in a position where federal legislation is something that's looked to as being important and worthy of the consideration of the U.S. Congress. And so that, from my perspective, is what makes us so critically different than so many of our other fine colleagues mm. in the animal protection movement. When it comes to choosing issues, we try desperately to stay focused on what the priorities of the family of organizations actually are, first of all. Secondly, trust me, there may be breaking news. Um, Hallmark is a perfect mm. example. We all here lived through it, and we saw what transpires Can you when, just say a little bit about what Hallmark is for those who may not remember? Sure. Yeah. It was an undercover investigation that sort of broke out that demonstrated the ill 
ill treatment of cows mm-hmm. in in industries where they're utilized. Yeah, it was hideous. It was one of the worst examples mm-hmm. I've seen. And, you know, we were extremely fortunate that it was something that made news quickly and resulted in some pretty severe changes within that industry, including shutting down Hallmark itself. Mm-hmm. Whether it's that or it's a New York Times undercover investigation that was not led by any animal protection advocate or animal protection organization. Um, that undercover investigation demonstrating the lack of oversight of farm animals used in research activities was also critically important. So there are a variety of ways that these issues can come to us. I will also say members of Congress listen to their constituents, Mm -hmm. and it may not be one of our members or supporters. It may be a general person who goes to their member of Congress and says, by God, there ought to be a law protecting animals from, for example, lethal toxins like antifreeze. Mm -hmm. And what are we going to do about ensuring that the U.S. Congress sort of takes that issue on? So it's proactive. Sometimes it's reactive. And other times it's because somebody's genuinely come up with a really good idea Mm -hmm. that's of the moment and requires us to step in and be supportive. Mm So what is that sort of day-to-day, like what, what's an average day for you look like? Like if you could sort of do a TikTok from coming in in the morning to the end of the day, like what are some of the things that y'all and your, you and your team are taking on during the day? Like is it, is it mostly phone calling? Is it, is it going to meetings and talking with people directly? I mean, what, what does the work involve? Well, I'll be honest with you. My phrase is, I don't want to see butts in seats. <laughs> It's a fact. You know, phone calls and emails are critically important to the interaction that we have with members of Congress and staff, with folks in the administration and otherwise. But get your butt out of your seat. Mm -hmm. Develop those relationships by having face-to-face contact because then you become the source of information and also the source of ability to get things done. And so Wednesday, perfect example, I was back and forth to the Hill three times by 3.30 that afternoon. And at 3.30, I was at the White House for a briefing on a number of issues. And so it really literally, I I call myself a road warrior. Mm. And that's what I want from our staff too. You want to be in a position where people can't find you because you're actually in meetings on the Hill or you're doing drop-bys or you're in the Longworth cafeteria Mm. and you're running into friends and colleagues while you're there and really having an opportunity to create the relationships that then become the basis of how we get things done. Mm. So It is a very different dynamic than some of the other sections of um, the family of organizations. And I just think it's critically important that we ensure that folks recognize that we, of course, want to be responsive to you as colleagues when you've got questions and concerns about the movement of federal bills or the movement of a proposed rule through the administration. But we also need to be in a situation where Those seats are vacant Mm -hmm. because we're getting our job done. Mm. Interesting. You were talking before we went on, Mike, a little bit about how you uh, wanted to be an attorney and a gymnast when you were growing up. It sounds like you've now got a job that requires a lot of movement and flexibility even <laughs> even now. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is how did you get into it? How did you kind of come around to this field? Oh, Carrie, it's for me, it's a very rich story. But I will say the thing that's always been lacking for me is I have so much envy of my colleagues that had that one 
seminal moment mm. with an animal. I didn't have that. I grew up um, in rural Wisconsin and Minnesota. My formative years were spent 40 miles from the Canadian border mm. in Minnesota. And I grew up during a time when the only free-roaming wolves were in that state. Wow. Um, so I can track sort of the progress that we've had on that particular issue. And trust me, um, when you think about northwestern Minnesota, it is closer to Canada or North Dakota than it is to Minneapolis-St. Paul mm. by about eight hours. <laughs> it is yeah. also one of the coldest places yeah. on the face of the earth. <laughs> I have these memories of literally the frozen tundra, the northern lights, mm. and the sound of wolf packs. Oh, it is wow. incredible. I had zero appreciation for it mm -hmm. when I was growing up. It took having that distance and really getting interested in animal protection issues for me to sort of harken back to that. I mean, I have so many funny stories. Our, our school bus driver skating along on two-lane roads trying to avoid hitting moose and elk <laughs> and deer. Oh that was like a regular occurrence. Wow. It never occurred to me that life would be different. Mm -hmm. And it really took um, going to undergrad and then moving immediately back to D.C. thereafter, being in a situation where it was a job. Mm -hmm. I, I found a posting for a legislative assistant position with the Doris Day Animal League. Oh, and my first 18 years of animal protection work were spent with Doris Day. Mm -hmm. Better yet, the law firm that was affiliated with the Doris Day Animal League was Galvin, Stanley, and Hazard. And for those of you who mm -hmm. don't know, Roger Galvin was the prosecutor in the Silver Spring Monkey case. And he left being a prosecutor to form one of the first animal welfare law firms in the United States. The second principal there was Valerie Stanley, who filed the first cases against USDA on everything from face branding mm. to psychological well-being of primates. So it was critical from that perspective. And then the third principal was my boss, Holly Hazard, That's who so cool. I worked for for 18 years. Wow. Wow. And Holly became a true mentor to me, and somebody who uh, was a deep part of my life mm -hmm. over those years. Uh, I always laugh because there are a couple of key stories, I think, that were incredibly formative for me. One of them was she sat me down after a lobbying meeting, and she said, you know, Sarah, you may be from the Midwest, but you got to have some spine. <laughs> And I thought, wow. Was she critiquing your Midwestern politeness? Yes. Oh, that's so funny. Exactly. My husband has that exact same thing. Exactly. <laughs> it was the same sort of thing. And the second one was we had come away from a meeting at FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. It was in the Office of Commissioner, so it was very high level. And we were meeting with the chief science officer. And I kept deferring to him as Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Mm. So-and-so. And he, of course, continued to call me by my first name, mm. as you can imagine. I got out of there, and she advised me, just stop. Level the playing field. Mm. I recognize there's a need to be respectful and deferential, but you don't have to give them another leg up mm, by continuously referring to them in that fashion. And I carried that with me. So much of the work that I've done has been in the field of research and toxicology. And I, I am all about leveling the playing field mm. because the bottom line is seizing that mic and having that opportunity to have a conversation, whether it's at 
a workshop that's a science workshop or in a one-on-one setting, you want to ensure that you're respected and credible and that you're not kowtowing in Mm -hmm. any certain way. So sort of interesting, but I was incredibly fortunate Mm -hmm. to have those formative years. And trust me, I have got the best Doris Day stories too. (laughs) So I started at at the Doris Day Animal League while Ronald Reagan was still in the White House. Oh, wow. And those two were fast friends. Mm -hmm. Um, She weighed in on everything from chimpanzee retirement to simple things like spaying and neutering cats and dogs with the White House. Wow. That was Doris Day's approach to it. And I give her so much credit, too. You know, forming the Doris Day Animal League, that was probably the first 501c4 organization formed for animal protection. Mm -hmm. C4s are meant to be able to expend as many of their resources as possible on lobbying activity. That, to me, was foresight Mm -hmm. back in 1987, true foresight. So... I was extremely fortunate yeah. to come into the movement the way that I did. They paved the way. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Um, so, Sarah, what are, in the new year, Happy New Year, uh, what are some pieces of legislation uh, that we are working on, that we're looking forward to, that you think we um, really have a great chance of, of uh, getting a leg up on and, and closing? Great, Austin, no doubt. Well, last year, again, being incredibly successful really set the stage in a number of ways. Um, For obvious reasons, we've got a couple of bills that cleared the U.S. House of Representatives and are ripe for action in the U.S. Senate. One of those is the PAST Act. And PAST refers to this horrible practice of soaring the forelegs of a few breeds of horses, Tennessee walking horses, racking, and other wise. And those horses primarily are in just a few key states where that particular show, I guess, is continuing to take place. There's nothing that really comes out of the practice of soaring horses other than giving those riders the exaggerated gait mm. that perhaps allows them to win a blue ribbon in yeah. a show ring. For those it's who don't know, horrible. Sarah, can you say real quickly like what soaring is? Like what does it involve? Sure. So Tennessee walking horses, with all due respect, have been a traditional breed that have been used for long, long um, rides, Mm -hmm. in essence. Let me get this straight. Tennessee walking horses were used on plantations more than 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Why? They have an exaggerated, comfortable gait that is utilized because a rider could ride literally for 100 miles on that horse in a day. Mm -hmm. And it meant that A plantation owner, for example, could go from spot to spot without having to trade in his horse Mm, or rest mm -hmm. his horse. So that's sort of where that came from. It wasn't until a few decades ago that individuals wanted to enhance that exaggerated front leg gait of those Tennessee walking horses and went to horrific means to do Mm -hmm. it. Essentially, what they do is they expose the forelegs of the horse. They apply caustic chemicals. It soars the foreleg of the horse. Then they make it worse. They put that horse's forelegs on stacks. So you've got Basically, it'd be like you and me wearing platform Platform shoes, shoes, right? And we already have incredibly sore and painful legs. Exactly, exactly. So platform shoes on top of the sword forelegs and then chains to hit those sword forelegs that cause that pop Mm -hmm. of the front legs 
for that exaggerated gait. I mean, really seriously. Yeah. What is the purpose of this other than to be able to demonstrate that individuals can get a horse to do anything if they hurt them horribly Totally. Enough. It's like it makes the horse look like those like like uh, Rockefeller Center showgirls, but they, yes! no one no one sort of understand what goes into making them do that. Like the, 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 the high step is just it's created by incredible pain because they don't want to put their feet down. That is so true. And, you know, frankly, we've been working on this issue for a while now. There is a Horse Protection Act Mm -hmm. that was passed decades ago, and unfortunately, the loophole in it has allowed this to continue. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. House of Representatives resoundingly passed the PAST Act, and it's now up to the U.S. Senate to be able to act on that bill. Once again, we've got bipartisan group of U.S. senators who are supporting it, and they are going after additional co-sponsors to make it a prime opportunity for us now in Mm -hmm. the second session of this Congress. So that's one. We also resoundingly passed the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act. Look, shark finning is against the law Mm -hmm. here in the United States, but the underground trade is not. Mm-hmm. We're looking for a way to be able to address that. The House of Representatives passed that fairly recently. Again, a resounding vote, sending a message to the U.S. Senate, which has already cleared it out of the Committee of Jurisdiction. It's primed for floor activity. So we'll be pursuing that piece of legislation, too, shortly. And, oh, you folks have been hearing so much about it. The horse racing industry, the sport of mm. kings, if they do not get it together, the sport of kings is on its way out the door. Yeah. And the bottom line is there are probably few Americans at this stage who haven't been exposed at some point in time in this past year alone to a horse on track breaking down and dying mm. simply because they're doped. Yep. Let's be honest about it. There are other factors that go into it, but doping in the industry is the primary reason mm. we're seeing these sorts of breakdowns. So in a couple of weeks, we fully expect that in the U.S. House of Representatives, we'll have a hearing on the Horse Racing Integrity Act. Um, I am so proud of the Humane Society Legislative Fund staff. In the time that we were working on our Humane Scorecard, we increased the number of bipartisan co-sponsors on that bill by 84. So it's got the majority of the House of Representatives now supporting the bill. That's That's the power of that scorecard. So what does it mean when a bill has a co-sponsor? Like, what does that do for the bill that that sort of helps lift it, get it more attention? Great question, Carrie. Adding co-sponsors means that your member of the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate says, I support this legislation. Not only do I support it, I'm going to put my name Mm, to it. I'm going to co-sponsor it. And that means that any list that's available associated with the bill, whether it's the official list um, of the U.S. government or the list that we put together demonstrates exactly who has gotten on board in support of that legislation. The higher the number, the more mm. opportunity there is for movement on the bill. We've we've spoken a lot about the important work that HSLF has done and what they have been doing on, in the in and outs of, of the organization. For our listeners, what can we do to get involved in the process and how can we help uh, in the future? Well, I've got to tell you, we are so lucky. We have one of the strongest programs in the animal protection movement in the district leader program. If you are not 
currently signed up to be a district leader. And what that means is there are 435 congressional districts. So we want someone or some bodies to be willing to take up the mantle in each of those congressional districts and be a leader on animal protection issues. If you're not signed up to be a district leader, you got to call Carol Misseldine at HSUS and make sure that you are definitely doing so. We've been told by members of Congress it is one of the most effective approaches they've seen. And it's because every time, for example, we have this hearing coming up on the Horse Racing Integrity Act, we'll make sure that every district leader that is tied into the committee hearing the bill is messaging into those folks, we're supportive of this legislation, we want it to go from hearing to markup, let's see this move during 2020. Mm. And that's our district leader program, critically important. Great. Just out of curiosity, I mean, when we're talking about sort of getting butts out of seats and going to see your representatives directly, I mean, for a lot of people, I think that's probably a pretty intimidating ask. Are there places that they can go to kind of like get trained on this, know what to say, like get over their sort of natural shyness about something like that? Like, I was thinking particularly about our humane lobby days. Are there ways that we kind of train some folks? So, Carrie, I always tell people in this situation They work for you. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Everybody wants to be reelected. And this is a huge year in those terms. We've got one third of the U.S. Senate up for election, the entire House of Representatives, and then clearly it's a presidential year. The bottom line is have no fear Mm. because they work for you. They're the people's house. You know, yeah, the bottom totally. line is treat it from the perspective of this is this is like your your physician. Right. You're the customer. You're the customer. <laughs> and by the way, worse yet, if if it's your physician, you just leave the physician. If right. it's your member of the US House of Representatives, you, can make them leave. you go to the voting <laughs> booth and they're gone. It's a different sort of activity, yeah. right? So from that perspective, I think that's critically important. But one of the things that we have done, as you say, whether it's the state lobby days, and I urge you in your individual states, match up with your HSUS state director. This is the season of humane lobby days. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful way to get trained and to go with groups to your members in the state capitol. Secondly, sign up for Taking Action for Animals. Mm -hmm. You're going to see the open of registration next week. It's an incredible opportunity to come to Washington, D.C. Join your friends at HSLF at the U.S. Capitol and actually go with groups to meet with your U.S. representative and your two U.S. senators. So there are ample opportunities through those two programs Mm -hmm. to do so. But then second or thirdly, the district leader program. You know, every week we're engaging with Carol and the folks associated with it to ensure that our asks related to federal legislation and regulation are honored Mm. and that our district leaders are engaged in that. So we provide ample opportunity just at the end of the day. They work for you. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. All right. Sarah Amundsen, president of the Humane Society Legislative Fund. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We really, really appreciated the conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 
All right, that's all we have for today's show. Be sure to follow HSUS and HSI on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the website humanesociety.org for the latest info. You can also message podcast at humanesociety.org. Send us your reactions, questions you have, and topics that you want to hear for our next episode. See you next time on Humane Voices. <laughs>